What is temptation? While I was thinking about this a little bit yesterday evening, I was preparing some thoughts, and I came up with this thought. Temptation, a travesty of tangled truths to tell tantalizing thoughts, treacherous trials to torment tired travelers. I almost made that the title of my sermon, but I thought perhaps that might be difficult. So, But I did want to share that thought. Our message today is based actually in the story of Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Christ. We find it both in Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke. But if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll spend most of our time there in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. For sure, this is a familiar passage to all of us. But even so, it is still full of meaning. Let's just set the context for this story very quickly. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, immediately after he was baptized, this is the context. Of course, we know the the account of Jesus' supernatural birth. His growing up years, we don't have much in the Bible that talks about it other than that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But there at his baptism in the Jordan River, at the hands of his cousin, John the Baptist, there Jesus was baptized. And as he rose up out of the water, God the Father and the Holy Spirit together affirmed Jesus' identity, Jesus' deity, and his identity as the only begotten Son of God. This whole concept of the incarnation of Christ, of Christ coming down from heaven and entering into the form of a human being. It's a mystery. It's intriguing. And sometimes I think that we put far too little thought into understanding the ramifications of what this means that God became man, Emmanuel, God with us. Nowhere in the Bible do I think we have more, shall we say trouble, more information about what this means than here in this account of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. We know what it means for us to be tempted. What does it mean for Jesus to be tempted. How was the temptation that Christ faced in the wilderness the same as the temptation that you and I face day after day? In what way was it different, if at all? These are some questions I'd like for us to dig into in just the brief minutes we have together today. Now, first of all, I want to say I don't claim to have all the answers. This is something that I have been studying and studying off and on for many years. At the same time, I feel like I've only begun to study the subject. And today, rather than me standing and, and preaching to you and telling you this is, this is absolutely, this is all there is to this, I, wanna, I want you to enter, into me, enter in with me into this study so that we can study together. I don't think that 
I don't claim to have all the answers to the questions, but I think this is a worthy subject for our thoughts and our endeavors of study. In the process of studying together, my prayer is that we may come to a better knowledge of Christ, of Christ's mission to this world, and of Jesus' desire for you and to me and for me to save us from the power of the enemy. Sometimes when we talk about something, it's easier to talk about it and understand it when we talk about what something is not. Okay? Now, I know this is not always the best way to teach. How do I describe something when I say it's not something else? We, could, we describe something as best as we can, but sometimes when there's a lot of similarities, it's easy to make an analogy up to a point and, and then say, but this is not. Well, let me just give you an example. Here's a creature from the world of nature. Uh, Johanna, can you tell me the name of this creature that's up on the screen? A platypus. Now, we don't see platypus swimming around in the creeks around here. At least I've never seen one. Have you, Johanna? We've never seen one swimming around in the creeks. They live in Australia, if I'm not mistaken, or New Zealand. But it's kind of a strange creature. It looks a little bit like a beaver, but it's not a beaver. It's a little mammal, but it has a bill like a duck. It has webbed feet like a duck. Is it a duck? No, it's not a duck. It's a platypus. Well, you get the idea of what I'm saying. We can make analogies up to a point, but then there comes a point and we say, it's not a duck. So I want us, as we open up our Bibles today for just a few minutes, to look at the temptation of Christ and see what it is and also what it is not. So back to our story. It might sound a little bit in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the, spirit, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights afterward, he was hungry. You might take this to mean, well, Jesus was baptized, and then he goes marching off into the desert, and he's marching off to the desert to face off with Satan. He's just, I mean, he's got it in his mind. That's where he's going. He's going he's to meet up with the devil and he's going to conquer the devil. Well, actually, not quite. If we read the passage very carefully, did Jesus just go marching off into the wilderness by himself? Is that what it says? No, it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I think that's a very important point. It's very important that we don't miss this point in the passage. Because if we think that Jesus just got up out of the water and went marching off by himself on his own volition, voluntarily marching off, knowing that he was going there to fight off with the devil, I think we might get a rather dangerous conception in our minds. Jesus proclaimed in John chapter 5, and verse 30, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You see, even though Jesus has always been with God, even though Jesus has a perfect, uh, a perfect, he's perfectly capable of doing everything he ever did and more all by himself, he didn't do anything by himself. 
The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness for a special time of prayer and communion with God. This is important because Jesus also taught his disciples in Matthew 6 and verse 13. He taught his disciples to pray, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, whenever we're making decisions, whenever we are following the Lord, sometimes the Lord will lead us into a path where we will face temptation. In fact, I, don't, I can't think of a way that the Lord could lead us where at some point we would not face temptation. But at the same time, we should not presumptuously put ourselves into the position of being tempted or of confronting the devil unnecessarily. I like the way that Mark puts it in Mark chapter 1, verses thir- uh, 12 and 13. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, compelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. You see, it's not so much that Jesus went there. Obviously, looking back, we know that that was the per- part of the purpose for his going into the wilderness was to be tempted. But his going into the wilderness was primarily to spend time commun- in communion with God, in prayer and preparation for this great work. So here we have the temptation knots. First and foremost, temptation was not Jesus' volition. He didn't put himself in the way of temptation, but rather he put himself in the way of God. And God allowed this temptation to come to him for a very important reason. And let's dive into that for just a minute. So Jesus went into the wilderness to fast and to pray. Fasting. What is fasting? Fasting means, it can mean several things, but mainly it means going without food, sometimes without food and water, but we don't understand in this case. um, I don't know that Jesus went without water. I think it would be very uh, impossible. It would be almost impossible to go without food for 40 days, but that's, that's how we understand that he went without food for 40 days. Now that's about... That's over a month. How many of you have... Well, maybe I shouldn't ask this question. How many of you ever ever fasted for any time at all? Well, probably all of us could raise our hands, right? How many of you have ever fasted for more than a month? Not me. <laughs> that, I think 40 days is probably the limit of about as long as a person could go. Now, I've heard of per- people going maybe a little longer than that, but you get really, really, really sick. And you'd be sick after 40 days... If you, I mean, hungry is not, I mean, that's kind of a, a, that doesn't hardly describe the feeling that you would have after 40 days without food. But, but Jesus was in the wilderness. Now, he goes there to pray. Like we said, he's going there. Fasting is something you do not every time you pray, but when you have a special burden on your heart, perhaps a a burden of sin, perhaps repentance for sin. Now, that's not the case with Christ, but a a case of earnest entreaty, entreating the Lord. He felt the weight of the responsibility on his heart as he was baptized. And he's starting out in this ministry, not just a ministry for a few people there in Judea, But on his shoulders is the weight of the salvation of the entire world and really the salvation of the universe. He's on a mission 
for the salvation of this, the, the reconciliation of this entire great controversy problem. And he's realizing the magnitude and the weight of this responsibility that lays, lies on his shoulders. Though he is God, yet in, very, in his, just as real a sense, he is a man, just like you and me. He is a human being with all of the weaknesses, all of the frailties of humanity. And so in realizing this, he fasts. And yet even in fasting, then, though he is spiritually strengthened, he is physically weakened. And after 40 days, he is hungry, faint with hunger, and weak. You know, this part of Jesus' life has always been a little bit difficult for me to understand. After all, Jesus is God. He knew what his mission was. Why all this agonizing drama? I don't know about you, but maybe this has always just made sense to you, but to me, in some ways, it's a mystery. In my subconscious thought, it's difficult to to understand. It's like he had it all figured out. I mean, Jesus, I mean, he's he's just going to go in the wilderness. He's going to go there. He's going to pray. Then he's going to go call his disciples. I mean, he shouldn't, he, he knows everything, right? He just, wait a second. As God, he would know everything, but as a human being, he doesn't. As a human being, he goes into the wilderness knowing that he is the son of God by faith in the proclamation that was given at his baptism. Think about that. He didn't feel as though he were the son of God. He didn't, he, though he knows that, yet he feels just like any other human being. The temptation of Christ, this account that we have, gives us a, such, a, such a deep picture of the nature of Christ. Was Jesus simply play-acting? Did, did God come and put on a costume of humanity and pretend to be a human being? Or did he actually become a human being? That's a, that's a picture, by the way, of a little kid dressed up as a mouse. Is the, is the kid a mouse? Or is it a little kid, right? Did God pretend to be a human being, or did he actually become a human being? That's one of the questions that we find the answer to here in the nature, in the, in the passage, the story of the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4 teaches us, for one, that Jesus' humanity was real. And in that, we understand that Jesus' temptation was also real. Jesus didn't pretend to be tempted by Satan. Jesus was truly and really tempted by Satan. Jesus didn't pretend to fight the devil. He did battle with the devil. And though he won the victory, praise God, he won the victory, The victory was not inevitable. Yes, he could just as easily have lost the battle. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but he, Jesus, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we've established that Jesus was tempted. 
Not only was he tempted, but he was tempted in a way that he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Jesus was not play-acting in this great drama of the great controversy. Jesus was sleeves rolled up. What was that you are talking about last week, Micah? Loins, girt? Sleeves rolled up. He was, he was 100% in, 100% human, and battling just like you and me. But here's the good news, friends. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. How do we understand this beautiful, incredible transaction that Jesus gave for you and me? How do we understand Christ's nature? I don't know if you can read this on the screen, but I'll read it to you. I was reading this in Desire of Ages, and it's, such a, it's said so beautifully, so succinctly. I wanted to read it to you from the pen of Ellen White. For 4,000 years, the race, that is the human race, had been decreasing in physical strength, in mental power, and in moral worth. And Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. Only thus could he rescue man from the lowest depths of his degradation. Many claimed that it was impossible for Christ to be overcome by temptation. Then he could not have been in Adam's position. He could not have gained the victory that Adam failed to gain. If we have in any sense a more trying conflict than had Christ, then he would not be able to succor us. But our Savior took humanity with all its liabilities. He took the nature of man with the possibility of yielding to temptation. We have nothing to bear which he has not endured. Friends, to sum it up, Jesus had no advantage that we cannot have. Wow. Doesn't that change the picture a little bit? In no way could Jesus have an advantage in battling temptation that you and I cannot have. So let's dig into this narrative a little bit. Here's the first temptation of Christ. And we won't have time today to go through all of the temptations of Christ. Maybe next time I will have another sermon, make this a two-part series, and we'll go into all the nature of temptation and how each of Christ's temptations pointed or, or, or represented the different categories of temptation that you and I face. We're only going to deal today with the first temptation of Christ, so otherwise we'll be here all afternoon. Now the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones. Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus is hungry. He's really hungry. And tired. Really, really tired. Really weak. And he's been praying. And now he literally sees an angel coming to him. He's been praying, isn't he? Maybe this angel is sent from God to rescue him. But he knows the devil in that first word. In these circumstances, this apparently heavenly being comes to, comes to Christ and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If. 
if you are the Son of God. It's one of the shortest words in our vocabulary, but it's so full of meaning. It was as if to say, Jesus, you can't be the Son of God. God wouldn't let his son starve. Maybe you've fallen out of grace with God. Maybe, in fact, you're on the wrong side. After all, if you really are who you claim to be, prove it. Friends, I want to ask you this question, as is just to diverge a little bit. If God says something to you or to me, if God says it, how much more proof do we need in order to believe it? Can we believe what God says based on the very fact that he said it? God had said to Jesus there at his baptism, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How much more proof did Jesus need than what he already had? If God says to you or to me, Lo, I am with you always, do we take him at his word? Anyhow, so Jesus hears Satan's temptation, if you are the Son of God. Jesus was the Son of God. It was as if a, a challenge, a, a, a dig. <laughs> Guys, you might, you might know what I'm talking about if I, if I say this, and I, I'm so thankful that I don't have a wife that says this to me, but if, if, you're, if a wife or a woman ever comes to you and says, if you're a man, you would do this. <laughs> what does that do to you? It gets under your skin, right? <laughs> if you're a man, you would do this. If you're the son of God. You know, Jesus had the power to do that. And that kind of brings me to my other point. In this way, in this way alone, Jesus was not just like you and me. You see, if, if someone comes to me and says, hey, turn this stone into bread, I'm like, what, are you kidding? But the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus knew in his mind, he knew that if all he did was say the word, he could turn every stone in the Jordan Valley into hot, steaming loaves of bread, just like that. You can't say that he, the thought didn't cross his mind, so to speak. It was a real temptation. But no, you see, Jesus worked on a principle. We could call it a rule of engagement, so to speak. Before he, even, before he was ever born of the Virgin Mary, this rule of engagement was that Jesus would not do anything for himself that you and I cannot do. That is to say, Jesus would not use any power, even though he had all the power in the universe, he had it there at his command, he would not use any power that you and I cannot have. And so because you and I can't turn stones into bread, he's the, he would not do that for him. He would not use his divine power to serve his own selfish needs. I, I, I didn't do that slide. Jesus was not just like you and me, but he did not use his power just for himself. And now Jesus knows who this angel is. This angel is no angel at all, but he's a devil. Only the devil would come to him with this word, if. Jesus could have fried the devil to a crisp right there. He could have spoken the word, and that old demon would have been gone, just like that. But no, Jesus didn't even use his divine power to send the devil away. 
Look at what he does. Instead, he simply quotes scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus resisted the devil in the very same way that you and I can resist the devil. I said a moment ago that Jesus' temptation was different than yours and mine. Well, different perhaps a little bit. That's because Jesus isn't exactly like you and me. You could say Jesus had a dual nature. He had this divine nature and the human nature. In this temptation, he couldn't rely on his inherent divinity for strength. Even though he, it was accessible to him, he couldn't rely on it to serve his own needs. That was the temptation that, 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 that Satan brought to Jesus. He had to rely on his heavenly Father to provide for him. That was the question. Would he rely on himself to provide for his, himself, or would he deny himself and trust his heavenly Father to provide for him? Now, wait a second. That sounds awfully familiar. That's exactly the same way that we resist temptation. You see, even though the temptation to Christ was different because of his nature, the, the response to the temptation, the nature of the temptation, was exactly the same. How so? Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, just as Christ had two natures. Now, don't, don't, um, don't read too much into what I'm about to say, okay? So I'm not trying to set up some, some weird theology, okay? But I just want to, I want to show and make an analogy. Is that okay? Can we make an analogy without twisting the scriptures? And I think this is not twisting the scriptures too much. Just as Jesus had two natures, he had a divine nature and he had a human nature, so you and I can have two natures. We have our natural nature, which is a carnal mind, enmity against God. And then, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, we can be born again into a spiritual nature. You see, in this way, the first temptation of Christ was not so much unlike the temptation that the devil gives to you and to me. The temptation to Christ was, don't use the power that God has given you. Don't, don't exercise faith. Do it yourself. The temptation to you and to me is exactly the same. Don't exercise faith. Do it yourself in your old carnal nature. Let's take a look at Christ's nature and our nature. The nature that Christ took on was, in a sense, we could say, a sanctified human nature. Christ's nature is divine. Oh, 
I said that already. In living in this world, he could not depend upon his own strength. He relied entirely on the strength of God through the Holy Spirit outside himself. Christ took our weakness and he depended upon the strength of God outside himself. He did not rely upon himself. We are Christians, Christ's followers. Naturally, we are subject to the carnal mind, to Satan's temptations. The carnal mind, Paul says, is at enmity towards God. We are inherently selfish, and this carnal mind, if we follow that, leads only to death. But praise God, we can experience new birth and have Christ's nature implanted into our hearts. That sanctified nature, we are inherently weak, but we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't rely upon our own strength, our carnal self, but we rely on the power of God through the Holy Spirit. So Satan came to Christ with his temptation. Don't trust God. Use divine power, but use it for yourself. And if, just as if we rely upon our carnal nature, it will lead to death. So if Christ had bought into Satan's temptation, it would have destroyed not only his mission, but possibly the whole universe with it. Friends, there's so much more that we can study. There's so much more that we can learn from God's word. But I want to leave you with a few thoughts just today. What about you? The choice is ours today. Jesus has blazed a trail before us. Jesus has fought the battle with the devil and won. We, too, can believe his word and have the same victory that he has had. But only as we allow him to change our nature, to sanctify our will, to take away the carnal nature and replace it with a spiritual nature. That is to say, as we cease to rely upon ourselves, we'll always have that carnal nature. It's just whether we choose to follow it. If we choose to live in that nature, or if we choose to live in the nature that he gives to us, what will you choose? Will you choose to serve yourself or will you choose to serve Christ today? Who will it be? Will it be me or will it be Christ? My prayer is, not I, but Christ in every word and action. O loving Father in heaven, Lord, this is our prayer. Not I, but Christ. May we experience the new birth May we have not our carnal nature, but your nature shining through us each and every day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.